On New Year's Eve 2019, award-winning journalist and disability advocate Zoe Simmons watched her hometown of Batemans Bay on the New South Wales south coast burn. She's now writing a book about her and her community's experiences of the Black Summer bushfires. I'm Bridget MacArthur, this is Chronically Chilled, and today we are so lucky to be joined by Zoe for a special Disability Day episode to discuss climate change and the many ways it disproportionately affects the disabled and chronically ill community. Thanks so much for joining me, Zoe. Where are you chatting to us from today? Thank you so much for having me. I am currently in Wurundjeri country in the Kulin Nation um, in Melbourne. And to kick off with, I'd really love to hear um, a bit about your own experiences of the Black Summer bushfires of 2019, especially kind of coming up to a three-year anniversary. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it's it's wild that it was three years ago because it doesn't feel like that. Um, it doesn't really feel like time has passed at all, but it does at the same time. So it's really, really interesting experience, I guess, of trauma. <laughs> um, so in 2019, I went back to Batemans Bay, which is where I grew up and it's where my mum lives. Um, you know, I was going back for New Year's Eve. It had been a long time since I'd seen her. I really, really, really needed to see her. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we got caught by bushfires. I, I woke up the morning of New Year's Eve to uh, fire trucks in my street and birds flying and screeching away and red skies and looming smoke. And it was just such a terrifying experience. And the embers were not even supposed to reach us, not even the embers, let alone the actual fire front. So, uh, it was just a shock waking up that morning, checking the app and seeing how far the fire had spread overnight without anyone really being aware necessarily. And uh, mm. it was a very scary experience and we didn't have power. We mostly didn't have reception. There were some random pockets that there was still reception, but uh, everything was on fire. And it is not a fun thing to see everything you've ever known go up in flames basically uh you know we have ended up evacuating um and that was just a really horrible experience of preparing the house and thinking oh if I don't do this my my stepdad who's staying to defend is gonna die um yeah. you know it's just not something I'm ever sure you can fully understand unless you have experienced it or you've read lived experience accounts it like what you see in the media just does not convey what it's actually like mm. to go black and to know people who who died and to know that many of your friends are homeless because the fire caught them unawares and, you know, it wasn't a normal fire. It's what all the firefighters I've interviewed tell me. And, yeah, <laughs> we just get forgotten. As soon as COVID hit our shores, we were absolutely forgotten. And I think every natural disaster kind of gets the same thing that people forget as soon as there's another hot story, mm -hmm. people move on. But the people impacted by it are still suffering. We still have people that are living in tents, living in caravans, that are still fighting with insurance, that are still coping with the trauma of losing everything. And even people that have been able to get houses, they just they tell me that nothing feels comfortable because their whole lives were taken yeah, we all have seen those images of some of the events on the day, but we, we're not really seeing many images of kind of the longer term effects or how the community is building back. And your book, I'm guessing, is kind of 
um, your own um, attempt or contribution to trying to make sure those stories live on? How has it been collecting some of those stories from the local community? It's been really hard, uh, especially as more time passes. Being disabled myself, living with chronic pain and chronic fatigue, it is really hard to exist. Um, unfortunately, my book currently doesn't provide me income, so I have to do other work as well so I can live. And I feel a lot of guilt that I haven't gotten these stories out sooner. Um, but it is a really traumatic topic and it's traumatic for me in my own stories. It's traumatic for me writing and basically living other people's experiences. Uh, but I think it's really important. I, I noticed that there was no real information in the fires. Uh, even the fires near me app in New South Wales wasn't working. So there was no like information on what the fire was doing or where it was going or where it was safe. And the roads were blocked off by flames, so news outlets couldn't come in. And so I started sharing what I was experiencing, sharing what I was seeing, um, sharing what people, where, where we're safe, because a lot of people, you know, had loved ones in the area and they couldn't get in touch with them because no reception, no internet. Um, so when I did have those pockets of uh, reception, I shared as much as I could and it helped a lot of people to know, you know, okay, this place is safe to go to. And, you know, if your loved one is here, they are okay. It is okay if they are here because, you know, a lot of people didn't hear from their loved ones for days and it was just such an extraordinary experience. And I just kept thinking that thousand word articles just couldn't capture it. And that's what I was initially doing, writing my own experiences, one of which I actually wrote by hand and then used my laptop's last few minutes of charge to quickly type up the fastest article I've ever written in my life. Plus, you know, driving somewhere with reception, hotspotting my, hot my phone and then sending it off to an editor. Um, but after the fires, I just kept writing stories to raise awareness, um, to help people feel like they weren't alone, as well as to raise money. I, I put a lot of fundraisers in the articles I wrote to try and help people. And I think it ended up raising like 30,000 or something. Um, I mean, it's hard to know if that was directly my impact, but I at least was able to share those stories and those fundraisers with big audiences. But I just kept thinking that it just wasn't, enough and there was so much of our experiences we just weren't seeing and I just kept thinking it can't all be for nothing so I decided to write a book I've always wanted to write a book but um when I had this idea I just felt this blast of creativity and I just knew I had to do it I just knew I had to capture these stories because people in cities that have never experienced these things they don't get it they don't what it's like to see everything burn and they're not impacted by it. It's easy to turn a blind eye when it's not affecting you, but, you know, it does affect a lot of people and it's not a matter of if this will happen again, it's a matter of when. Mm -hmm. So my book is sharing the experiences of people who feel forgotten, um, sharing the fact that we have been forgotten over the last couple of years, as well as my own experience as a disabled journalist grappling with these feelings and traumas and you know finding out that someone you went to school with passed away was pretty rough and probably pretty um resonant for a lot of people going through the floods at the moment obviously it's a different kind of natural disaster but sort of a similar thing in terms of it being quite hard for people who aren't there to fathom what that's like 
Absolutely. Like I've never lived through a flood of that scale. I have lived through a bushfire and it just changes you and you're just in this constant state of fight or flight and nowhere mm. feels safe. Like after I came back from the fires and came back to Melbourne, I couldn't leave my house because I was convinced that it was going to catch on fire. I, I couldn't function if I heard sirens, um, even the colours uh, red and blue or hearing helicopters overhead. All of those just brought me straight back into the evacuation centre and the memory of looking up at the cliffs before me with the black smoke and that if the fire came, we'd run into the water behind us. You know, those are things that most people don't have to even ever think of. So when you've been through a fire or a flood and these things that just don't feel real, but they are, and it, it does stay with you. You're listening to a special Disability Day episode of Chronically Chilled. I'm speaking with journalist and disability advocate Zoe Simmons, who experienced the Black Summer bushfires firsthand in her town of Batemans Bay. So you live with fibromyalgia and undiagnosed adenomyosis, if I'm pronouncing that okay, and bipolar and anxiety. How did you find that, I guess, your disabilities and chronic illnesses affected the evacuation process, but then also how has the kind of um, experience of that trauma also interplayed with with your disabilities in the longer term? So at that time, I did really diminish my disabilities and the impact they had on me. I didn't have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia back then, so I didn't really know what was happening to my body. I just knew that I was in a lot of pain, that I experienced a lot of fatigue, that my hands and legs would go numb quite regularly, and that it just wasn't a fun time to exist. Uh so, you know, that morning, you know, the night before, I remember feeling so anxious about everything and anxiously checking, checking the app and it was the early hours of the morning and I, I didn't end up getting much sleep that day because my mum knocked on the door and said, hey, there's a fire, we have to, we have to get out. Mm. Um, so running on low sleep is not good for anyone, especially when you have chronic pain and chronic fatigue. Um, but that morning, the adrenaline just kind of eradicated everything for me. I didn't think about the pain. I didn't think about fatigue until a lot later. And in that moment, it was just go, 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 go. Okay, pack the car. Okay, um, are the dogs in the car? Do our documents? Um, is Do I have the stuff that my dad and pop gave me before they passed away? Um, have we... Close all the doors and windows. Are there wet towels on the window seals? Are there containers of water around? And it was just go for me the whole morning. Um, although there one was, was one moment where I had a pretty major freak out. Um, my mum has a like a quite a large garage underneath her house, and um, she was storing timber furniture for some people. And uh, the back door is an old wooden back door with cracks in it. And um, as part of me going through the house and trying to prepare. I uh, kind of broke the door and I kept, I just was like, oh God, the house is going to burn and it's my fault because I didn't close the goddamn door. The struggles of thinking if I didn't prepare the house correctly, it would mean that someone died. Or, you know, thinking that if our house went, then other houses would go. So it'd be my fault again that, you know, other people in my neighborhood lose their homes. And um, obviously they're not logical thoughts, but they were the trauma thoughts I was having in that moment. And then um, I've heard that there is a thing called bushfire brain which is actually like the literal um zapping of oxygen from the air from the bushfires that literally was causing people to not be able to think straight on top of the stress I mean yeah I remember having 
such bad headaches just from not having clean air to breathe. So that was also another thing to tack on to everything and just feeling so sick. Um, but most of that morning while I was preparing and getting to the evacuation centre, my um, disabilities thankfully behaved because they were just kind of destroyed by adrenaline. But, you know, later on I did I did notice how sore my body was, but, you know, even like 3 a.m. the next day, I was still pumping full of adrenaline. I just didn't think, like, I didn't think of my medication for one. I didn't think of packing, like, food and drinks. Um, I didn't think of packing somewhere to sleep. So, you know, by the time that things started calming down a little bit and we weren't in imminent danger, uh, you know, I didn't have any of the things to help me manage my body. Mm. <laughs> it was not great at all. Like uh, that was probably the most uncomfortable night I've ever had. Um, I just had my my partner and I had his car, which is just like a two-seater tradie huge. And we first tried like sleeping inside the cab because, you know, less smoke. But it was so uncomfortable. Like you can't recline. And I, I remember we tried to fall asleep on the like tray in the back and just remember like feeling the cold metal and not having pillows. So I think we were laying on shoes or something with a drop sheet over us and I still couldn't sleep. I was still so tired. I was, but I was awake, but stressed and, you know, you'd see the updates coming through and I saw that a person I went to school with had passed away and, you know, seeing all these houses lost and all this information. And then also at the same time, seeing so many people in the cities with, um, you know, fireworks or celebrating and it just felt worlds and worlds and worlds apart. Um, and even like in the evacuation center, um, I'm really grateful that I had the capacity I did back then because I have, I struggle a lot more with mobility now. And um, unfortunately the places they put the information and like all the food was upstairs. So mm -hmm. you couldn't get upstairs, you couldn't get that information or you couldn't get food. Someone would have to bring it to you um and while the stairs did hurt me to go up I was able to go up there and sit there I just didn't really think of anything I kept thinking of the firefighters that were risking their lives and diminishing my own self that did have the impact of then when my body calmed down eventually uh feeling just very 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 sore like mm. the impacts still affect me now I don't ever think I've necessarily gotten out of that adrenaline rush it kind of always feels like it's there it always feels like I'm in fight or flight mode or like you know looking for danger of the next natural disaster and um you know that did significantly flare my pain when I got back I had to take time off work um I just really was not well and I think that's part of why I started writing the book because I just needed an outlet to express that and a place for people who felt like I did so you know I wrote it <laughs> And in, your, in writing your book, have you come across any experiences or documented any experiences of others who were living with disabilities at the time? Um, so a lot of people have had mental illnesses and conditions like that. Um, so that is a discussion I've had with uh, some people, or even if they didn't beforehand, they have trauma now. Um, you know, a lot of people were coping with PTSD, for example. Uh, but I did interview... Uh, another wheelchair user, um, electric wheelchair user, and um, they're actually radio hosts down there. So um, they had a really good insight into what was happening in that part of the world and what it was like using an electric wheelchair. Like they 
drove their electric wheelchair to work instead of driving because the roads were so blocked and there was no fuel anyway. And, you know, where there was fuel, there wasn't electricity. So if you didn't have cash, you couldn't pay for it. And uh, the lines were so, 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 so long. So um, this person ended up saying that it was much easier just to drive their wheelchair in. Um, but also electric wheelchairs do need battery power and you need electricity eventually for that. Like they do last quite some time, um, at least the ones I've used. But there's so many things that people don't necessarily think of. Like that person wouldn't have been able to go up and get the information upstairs. You know, I just don't think it was really considered for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're seeing that on the wider um, world stage as well. I mean, this year was the COP27 and it's been like over a decade since I think the Cancun agreements, um, which like kind of landmarkly identified people with disability as disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. But since then, I mean, like the Paris Agreement and the Glasgow Declaration barely referenced it um, and it never really seems to be a high up on the agenda in terms of, I don't know, for example, the recent Victorian elections or federal elections. I mean, have you kind of since become more engaged in the in the global discussion around that intersection? How are you seeing that develop? I mean, I think disability is definitely forgotten for the most part from pretty much everything. So it really doesn't surprise me that disability is being left out of the conversation, particularly when it comes to natural disasters and climate change. Uh, I feel like we often don't exist for the non-disabled community because we aren't represented and our views aren't represented for the most part. That is changing, but it's still a huge, huge, huge divide. Um, and honestly, in all these years, I've had I've heard so many people talking about the bushfires and the number of people talking about disability as well. Uh, I've only heard one person talk about that once. So compared to the hundreds, probably thousands of people talking about it in general, it's never looked at through a disability lens because nothing ever really is unless we, the disability community, do or our allies happen to to help us. Drawing the parallels to the floods again, I mean, I hadn't even thought about it till now, but I haven't, I haven't heard anyone talking about disabled people's um, and accessibility um, during the floods. Yeah, like what are you supposed to do if you don't have mobility and can't, like, I don't know, jump on a boat? I mean, I'm not really sure about floods, but I'm assuming if you know that the flood was really high, you'd have to be able to get onto a boat or get somewhere and even like not having things like not having power, not having internet, not being able to access your community, um, having your medical appointments disrupted, not being able to get your medication. Uh, I know that was a problem in the bushfires because... Yeah couldn't get their medication, people forgot it, it got burnt. Um, all these little things that no one really thinks of because they feel like disability doesn't affect them. But the fact is it kind of does affect most people. Like even if you're not disabled, the things that benefit the disability community benefit the non-disabled community too, like uh, access to medication, access to food, access to electricity. Um, it's just these things obviously impact disabled people more because it's not as easy to just function without them, obviously depending on what disability you have as well. I'm speaking with journalist and disability advocate Zoe Simmons, who experienced the Black Summer bushfires firsthand in her town of Batemans Bay. Zoe, how has the rebuilding process been, um, particularly from a kind of disability perspective? Do you feel like that has seen the accessibility of the town decrease because of, um, you know, destruction of previous 
accessible um, building features or do you think it, in some ways it has been an opportunity to have discussions around that and create more accessible planning? I'm honestly not too sure in terms of accessibility being changed. A lot of the places that burnt down were residential homes. Um, I think there were some factories, so they weren't like the main thoroughfare of the town, for example, um, which is somewhat accessible, at least by the fact that it has pathways that are flat and elevators. It's not terrible for accessibility, but it's not great. Um, again, I don't necessarily even think these conversations, like disabilities have been considered in these conversations. Again, I think it's just not something people think about. Uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting as well because potentially, I mean, disabled people could be, as you say, like contributing a benefit for all um, because, I mean, they're kind of experts at the forefront of getting creative with like flexible adaptive solutions. Um, I know that some people have talked about like disabled people long before the pandemic were talking about adapting to working from home and making that more accessible. And, you know, if we listened to them back then, then we might've been more prepared for um, those kind of accessibility requirements when we all needed them. Yeah, and they benefited a lot of people, dis disabled or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's everybody. As a journalist yourself um, and advocating for the disabled community, what do you think the power of words is for creating change and, and healing post-crisis? I think words have so much power and they really can show you what it's like to be in a situation, it shows you how that person felt. It shows what that person thought. It shows how it impacted them and it, it humanizes it. And I think that is so important because it's so easy to ignore these stories when they don't necessarily have a human face. And when you give that personalized story, it makes people stop. It makes people think, it makes people feel. And I think that is key in creating change because I do think most people want to do good. Most people want to, you know, make things better for the disabled community. I do believe that, you know, most people want to do better, but it's not always the easiest to do that, especially if you don't know what exactly to do. So I think by providing these stories where you share these experiences, specifically from a disabled lens, it can be so powerful because often these are perspectives that people haven't considered at all even the non-disabled stories I have in my book for example um you know even those stories are so incredibly powerful because without those words they wouldn't have been told and I think words are so powerful especially in terms of trauma because you can take that dark experience you can take those the fear the trauma the guilt the everything that comes along with those experiences and you can create it into something beautiful and into something powerful and that is why I write anything um, in terms of my disability advocacy in terms of my copywriting in terms of my book uh, I think it can really really make change and I really want to be a part of that uh, you know, in the various forms, I've done it as a journalist. I do a lot of speaking and media gigs now, and uh, hopefully one day we'll be able to get my book out, hoping that an agent or publisher will see the value like I do in these stories because I keep getting told that, oh, it's been too long and no one cares about these things anymore. But I don't agree with that. 
And mm -hmm. the feedback I've been getting from my communities are that this means so much to them that someone is still fighting to have us be heard. And it can feel really isolating when no one understands and adding disability into that as well adds an extra level of, I think, grief that you just don't understand unless you've seen those experiences or felt them. So I, ho I hope I can help bridge the gap between that and make whatever kind of difference I can, whether it's just raising awareness that these things happen and that they will happen unless we do something, whether it's um, showing that, yes, people with disability are impacted by this at different levels to non-disabled people and, you know, showing that it's okay to feel traumatised by these things because they are traumatising. You're allowed to not be okay. You're allowed to need help. You're allowed to still not be healed. I mean, like the landscape may be starting to heal, but I don't personally feel healed and I just want people to know that that's okay. No matter what stage you're at in this, it's all right. And just having people bear witness to our pain and to our trauma means the absolute world. So I do hope my words can help and at least help people feel like they're not alone. Absolutely. And apart from um, any publishers listening to to reach out to you, what um, if you could give one action for the audience to take away today, what would that be? Honestly, I just like people to think about disability and that it exists and that it's often not visible. So you can't tell what someone's access needs are or what how they're feeling or how their body functions just by looking at them. We need to really change this perspective of disability and increase representation. And uh, in terms of climate change, we need to look after the planet. We need to make sure it's okay for future generations so it's not their burdens to bear. And I think also as part of helping manage um, the potential impact of bushfires, for example, we need to do bush management. We need to let First Nations people do their thing with their cultural burns because they survived many, 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 many years before white people came and we just need to listen to other people and consider other people and know that this does impact a lot of people and it will keep impacting a lot of people. There are so many stories that you do hear, but there are even more stories that you don't. And I think it's everyone's duty to bear witness and to learn and to do better in all areas of life, whether it comes to natural disasters, whether it comes to climate change and disability and accessibility in general, we are just not thought of. Yeah, absolutely agree. Listen, I think is a perfect, perfect message to end on. Um, and that's what we're trying to do here at Chronically Chilled as well. And I hope that the audience really enjoyed listening to you today. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and thank you to anyone listening and bearing witness. If you're interested in finding out more about Zoe's work, you can head to zoesimmons.com.au, which is double M. And if you um, are interested in finding more Chronically Chilled episodes or if you missed some of today's episode, you can head on over to 3cr.org.au slash chronicallychilled or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at chronically.chilled and on Twitter at chilled underscore 3CR. And playing us out today, we have our new Chronically Chilled theme song, which was put together for us by a um, local musician, Connor Black Harry. 
Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.